So how, how's everybody doing? Did anybody else feel they didn't want to come tonight? You can be honest. <laughs> sort of. So actually, when I, when I was on retreat in Germany and I was doing my prostration retreat, I did the 100,000 prostrations over three months. I was in my room with this wooden board just doing these prostrations. Um, every couple days, I mean, well, okay, so honestly, there was like probably like a whole month also, but I'd say like every couple days, I'd have a really strong feeling that I didn't want to do this. Like resist, like really strong resistance. And yeah, and then there was a point where it lasted for like a whole month where I was just like fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. I don't know why, but every couple days I had like a resistance to doing it. And I, and I just kind of did it anyway. And then I realized every time I did it, um, every time I could go through that resistance, it actually made me kind of like stronger. And it, it set down that pathway that it was then easier the next time. So I started calling it leveling up because I remember like when you're playing video games, like when I was a kid, you know, um, at the end of the level, you always have to fight the end boss who's like bigger and harder than all the other guys. But then once you beat him, then you get on to like the next level. And I found for myself that any time I have that resistance to just do it, to go through that, and I say to myself like, oh good, today's a level up day. You know, instead of saying like, oh today I don't want to do it, I always say like, oh it's a level up day. So there's this extra... Um, resistance, and I know that that's gonna that's gonna make me stronger. That 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 builds momentum, right? That gives us more momentum when you've overcome something. You get suddenly a huge new momentum. So, so yeah, that's cool. And um, I mean, it looks like half the class didn't have that momentum today. So, um, yeah. So I uh, so hi, everybody. Nice to see you guys. Um, yeah, it's nice to be here tonight. This is always like really my, I feel like my place to relax when I come to the meditation here. I love plugging in the Christmas lights. <laughs> you know, it's such a nice room for it, right? It's very, it's like set up for this, so it's cool. <coughs> um, I did a retreat a few days ago, so I spent three days by myself in an apartment. Um, can't say that I was meditating the whole time because I wasn't at all. Um, I felt that it was just important with the busyness of life, with my life, that I take some time for myself, take three days just to be with myself. Um, and, you know, coming from being in the monastery and just doing other practice experience, sometimes I'd have, right, like three-month blocks of time like that. Or, anyway, being in the monastery, you could kind of eke out time where you're really by yourself a little bit more. But, um, but in this world, it's not really so easy. A lot of people probably have never spent a day alone in their whole life, right? let alone three days. Um, so yeah, I really had to build that up. So you know, I, I set it a month ago on my schedule. I had a free weekend, and I said, that's going to be my weekend. And I set it down, and I planned. So when people wanted to make plans or asked me if I could do things, I said, nope. Like, I already have plans that weekend, plans with myself, right? And um, so yeah, I went 
I went and I kind of, I think it was actually four days. So. And um, I really just wanted to take some time for myself and I really quickly found that jumping into unstructured free time but while like kind of saying like I have to remain within like a room is a pretty surefire recipe to crash really hard really fast um, so I really I didn't you know have any structure I didn't try to meditate I didn't try to work out I didn't really try to do anything I really just let myself just kind of be and rest and I saw really quickly for myself then what comes out is kind of like the I would say the laziness but I don't say that in a way of judgment I just say that I just wanted to be comfortable I wanted to like lie there I had Gaia TV which has lots of uh, really cool like documentaries and things I was like watching about the flower of life and UFOs and the talk with the Dalai Lama and all things like this um, but I started realizing quickly that I was actually feeling really empty really un unhappy and that it was building this unsatisfactoriness within myself and it's interesting because I see in daily life, and I think this is something that's really important to address, um, because we don't have time to slow down, we don't have time to really be with ourselves, um, what happens is there's a, there's a kind of rift that sometimes starts to form um, where we start to get a little bit distanced from ourselves, we start to feel maybe a little bit empty so a lot of people actually have depression or anxiety or nervous breakdowns or whatever um, because of this or they become alcoholics or, or drug users or addicted to stimulation like computers, gaming, Facebook, The Bachelorette, whatever it is, you know, they, just something. Because any time you have that moment to stop and I, and you know, I see this every time I'm out is that whenever there's a situation where there's just people doing nothing, whether we're in a waiting room or in line or something, uh, they're on their phones, right? They're doing... And often I'll see and it's just scrolling. I, I very rarely... And I'm on my phone a lot too. I like to think I have a better reason because I actually kind of am an independent contractor and I'm always posting stuff. And most of the things I'm doing on my phone, it's for my work in a way, but not always. Um, and I really see that when people have this free time, this kind of little moment of free time, wherever they are, that they're not really able to stop. That they, um, and what I found for myself, so I can now say this from experience, that what happens is when you have time, you're really quickly brought in touch with the, the emptiness inside of yourself, the discontentment inside of yourself, the thing inside of yourself that you've been trying not to feel and the more you try not to feel that the stronger it's been getting which makes you have to even more try not to feel it um, and so whenever people have that moment to stop they feel that pain that discontentment that feeling of of actually disconnection from themselves is actually what the feeling is and when you feel that pain you have kind of two choices one choice is to feel that pain and one choice is to keep trying to not feel that pain. So I think it's culturally becoming easier and easier for us to not have to feel ourselves. Um, and you can kind of just see this by the way we are, right? That you very rarely see somebody who really just feels okay sitting by themselves and not having to do something.
I think that's kind of the key. It's like if you have to do something, if you're not doing anything and you feel like you're freaking out just because you're not doing anything, uh, that's kind of like a ding, right? That's like a warning sign, like a, a mindfulness bell. Maybe that's a better way to say it. It's like my bell here, right? So that's a bell that's saying like, hey, there's something to look at. And, um, and it's hard. I would say it was really, really hard for me to, to really fully stop and to let myself feel that and to kind of go through that, to kind of feel that enough that I felt like I had to break through like a crust as if there was like a, an emotional crust on myself. And I had to kind of break through this crust to again find myself underneath it. And I know because I took so many years of my life really working to be more in touch with myself and taking so many retreats and things where I really created that space, I feel that I've really, I've broken through that crust a lot throughout my life many times. Anytime actually I'll go on a retreat, that crust is always the first thing I have to break through. Um, I think and I kind of fear that the average person, their crust is maybe a lot thicker than mine. And, um, and a lot of people really put a lot of effort to not have to even acknowledge that it's there, to acknowledge that there's a, a disconnect between their, their feelings, their emotional body, and, and where they are themselves, kind of. Um, and so I think that's kind of almost this big... Um, it's kind of like an unspoken, I mean, I guess some people are speaking about it, but I often feel it's, it's sometimes like the societal elephant in the room, if you will, that when you look around, you kind of just see this everywhere. That, so we were actually just talking before about, um, about how people do everything through Amazon and things these days, and there's very few human interactions that people are, are, are not... Um, they're not really getting in touch with people so much these days. A lot of it's kind of electronically, and, and it seems like our window of having just real human contacts has kind of shrunken, um, and will continue to shrink, it seems, if things kind of keep going the way they are, technologically speaking. And I just think it's really important to, um, to kind of, yeah, again, just really acknowledge this and to kind of confront it, at least in ourselves. And again, this is like one of the hardest things to do. I mean, I'll be the first to say this. To like, to like go home or go wherever and just sit by yourself for an extended period of time and do nothing. Like no phone, no TV, no, like nothing by yourself. And just sit and you feel like you're dying. It's horrible. It's really, because it's like there's nothing, there's nothing to stimulate you. There's nothing to identify yourself with. Um, when I was in the monastery, we did a four-day meditation retreat with the monks and nuns and our teacher, and a lot of the community came, so our, our meditation hall was really full. And on the first day, he told this story, and he said um, that back in, um, I think it was even in India, um, maybe not in India, maybe it was in Vietnam, actually, that he said that there was a farmer, and he had uh, a cow, a mother cow, and the cow had given birth, so there's also a the calf, and the calf was not too small at this point. It was a little bit bigger. And, um, and the calf actually eventually it broke out of its pen, and it kind of escaped. You know, it was kind of, 
galloping through the countryside in its little calf body. And it walked down to the market, and it walked down into the markets, you know, in, in Asia, you see a lot of these open-air markets. There's people that have, you know, vegetables and fruits and things just kind of lying around and all the rotten stuff they just throw on the ground. So when I was in India, I saw a lot of cows and, and monkeys also kind of attacking the market, you know, just kind of swinging in and grabbing something, or cows just walking by, pretending like they're not interested, and if the person's not looking, it just really quickly, like, leans over and starts just eating whatever's there until the guy hits it with the stick and he keeps walking in. Um, and monkeys are even worse because they're really clever. So they'll, you know, one will come and distract the guy and he'll try to shoo it and then another one jumps up and grabs a handful of bananas and like runs away. Um, and so this little calf, he wandered down and he, he found this market and same thing, he started kind of sniffing around and, you know, eating things and finding things on the ground and kind of tasting all the different, you know, tastes of the world, right? Tasting all these fruits and vegetables and all these new things that it had never known because it had only been drinking its mother's milk up to that point. Um, and eventually, you know, in small towns as it happens, word kind of got out to this farmer that, oh yeah, you know, we got your calf down here. And they kind of held it and he came back and he got his calf and he kind of walked it back to the barn. <coughs> and he put it back in the stable with the mother. And, um, and the little calf, he was, you know, getting later in the day and it was hungry, but it didn't want to drink the mother's milk because it, it had just tasted all these new things. And it was really stubborn. It was kind of kicking at the door to get back out. It like, wasn't allowed to get out. And, and it was really refusing to drink the milk because it, it knew something else, something more exciting, something better, something more varied, right? And it really sat there, and it, it had to start to kind of starve a little bit. It really had to start to face this real difficult situation where it's getting more and more hungry, more and more kind of tired. And then eventually it had to go back to the milk and drink the milk of the mother and again recovered its strength because there's so much nutrients and it's so nutritious the mother's milk um, and my teacher said this is actually the metaphor for what we're trying to do here he said that ultimately ultimately really being in touch with yourself just this contentment of just being is actually kind of this this natural place this natural state kind of like how the mother's milk is like the most natural food for the baby. He said, actually, our most natural food, our most natural kind of nutrition in that sense, emotionally, it's really just the state of being, to really be embodied here. And this real, this ease and the sense of fullness and wholeness that's possible when you're just really here fully in yourself. But because we're out in the world and there's all these new things, we were just talking about virtual reality and there's there's all these new things coming in that we're tasting all these new kinds of impulses, all this new information, all this new stimulation, that when you come to sit, it's like you want to be everywhere but there because you've just known so much else that this space of, of this, the space of the, the meditation, the space of the mind which isn't doing anything, it's just so bland and boring and empty and kind of pointless. It's almost like you're in a void, right? When you just stop, you're in this kind of, you almost feel like you don't exist. It just feels this emptiness. But what happens is that when you're in that space long enough and, and all these other things start to fade away, that, that space which once was void starts to become really rich. It's kind of like when you walk into a, a dark room and you first walk in and it's just dark. 
but eventually when you sit there, your eyes start to adjust and you can kind of see everything that's in the room, all these shapes and what's happening in the room. It's kind of similar to that, that you first come into this space and there's nothing much to it. There's really nothing that you can say about it. It doesn't feel like much. It's kind of the space that we try not to be in all day long, actually. Just this blah, blandness space. But the more you kind of reside in that space, the more you do start to get in touch with things. You start to realize that, that there's kind of these really warm, gentle, more kind of natural, more organic impulses that are flowing around in that space, which are things like, for I saw for myself anyway, it was kind of things like, what do I feel inspired? Like inspiration was one thing that started coming. Like I started writing and drawing and stuff because I suddenly started to feel inspired. I started to feel kind of a feeling of like, what do I want to do? Which was a very different feeling than when I thought that I wanted to, you know, turn on music or turn on the TV or go outside. Like that feeling of always doing something. Like I feel like I want to pick up my phone and randomly just scroll through Facebook until I'm able to do the next thing that I have to do. But that's not, I didn't really, that's not really that you want to do that. That's almost, I'm just doing that to not have to feel the pain, right? So I realize that there's a difference between that compensation that we're doing, we're stimulating ourselves out of compensation to not have to feel this uncomfortable feeling versus actually feeling that you want to do something which is a much kind of deeper, it comes out of your heart. There's like a warmth and like a happiness to it. You feel happy. You don't feel happy scrolling through people's Facebook. It's not, it's not like a sense of joy, I don't think, right? But to really connect to what do I want, it's, it's a more joyful, it comes from like my belly or from my heart. It's this more joyful feeling. And also just the things around me, I started seeing them more clearly. This is something that happens on meditation retreats too, that you're... you're Literally, your vision becomes more clear, becomes more present. That on meditation retreats, you'll sometimes walk outside and see like a leaf on the ground. And it'll just be the most amazing looking leaf you've ever, you'll just bend down and pick up this leaf and you just can't, for like an hour, you'll just be looking at this leaf. And then you look over and the guy next to you is looking at a stick and it's like the most amazing stick he's ever, because for whatever reason, when you're just so present, you're really seeing things fully everything's suddenly like alive and colorful and really rich in its beingness and its essence. My teacher Achim Brahm also mentioned the story without going into details. Uh, he went into details, I won't, but he said he once went to the bathroom and he, before he flushed, he looked down in the toilet and was also just amazed at the beauty of this object that he saw. He's like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, right? Because suddenly he's just, his mind was so present and everything was just so alive, wow, it's almost like surreal, super real, right? And, um, and you really start to get in touch, whereas, you know, our mind usually just glazes over things, especially if we're familiar with them. Um, I think that this is biologically just an easy way to survive. I think if you see a friend, you recognize that face, you know that that person's a friend of yours. If you see a wolf, you just know that's a wolf, that's going to kill you. And we just start to glaze over things with concepts and we stop experiencing them. That's like when you're a child, you're really fully experiencing the world. 
And now we have like reference concepts over things. We don't often really have to be in touch with them fully. But you'd be surprised if when you go home today, if you have somebody at home, like a husband, wife, partner, an animal, to really look at that person that you see all the time, but to really just stop and really like look at that person a little bit deeper, you'll realize you haven't really looked at that person in a long time. And if you don't have another person, go home and just look at your space. Like literally just go in your room, turn on the light, and just stand and really just look. And you'll also kind of realize like, wow, I haven't really just looked at this in a while. And I guess it's just because our mind's so busy, we're jumping from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. We're so stuck in this mode of doing. And because there's this pain that we don't want to touch, we're always doing, that we're very rarely in a state of being, that we're very rarely just kind of here and present and in touch with ourselves and the things around us in a deeper way. So, um, so I'm happy that we're here tonight for meditation. I guess ultimately is like the point. And it's interesting because the Buddha once said something along the lines of, um, it's really strange because the things I teach are kind of things that nobody wants to hear. And the things I tell people to do are kind of the things that nobody wants to do. And yet people are still following me and doing this and benefiting from it. And, you know, when you think about this, this is like you guys have paid money to take an hour and a half from your life to sit in a school room and do nothing together. That seems like the least interesting thing one could offer. If you walked up to somebody on the street and said, hey, you know, go to downtown Andover. Hey, you want to come sit in the, in the yoga room in the high school with me for an hour? They'd say, no, of course not. It, it's not appealing at all. And yet on some level, there's people like us that say, that's exactly what I want. That, that's exactly how I want to spend my Wednesday night, is sitting with, in silence in this room. Because I know that that's, that's the mother's milk. That's the thing that I really need that's nutritious for me. That's really what I need, is to be in that space, that embrace of silent space, and to come back and be in touch. And, um, and it's totally counter, I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but it's counterculture at least. It's definitely against what the flow of culture is doing, which is about being out there and doing stuff. This is really counter everything that we're kind of being programmed to do, which shows that it's coming from a much deeper place. It's really coming from a deeper place where we feel this is a necessity, that there's something in us that really says we need this, I think. A lot of people come to meditation classes sometimes out of curiosity, but sometimes really out of necessity, out of desperation even. A lot of people, they come to me and they, they come to these classes and you know, some of them say, oh, I love meditating. And some of them really say, like, I need help. Like, there's no way forward for me right now. I need help. And I feel that a lot of people come to these classes for that reason, because they need, there's something that they need. And they feel that for whatever reason, sitting in the yoga room at Edinburgh High School is it, right? But there's also good news. As I was driving in the car today, I was looking on the highway, looking at all the cars passing me. And I often do this just thinking about how many people there are in the world. Um, I've started making um, 
recordings of the teachings I've been giving, and I also started making some podcasts. And I'm on iTunes now, so I was just at a smart TV, and I typed in Seth Monk, and I came up on the smart TV, which was like a cool... I feel like, wow, I'm famous now, right? On smart TV. Um, but I'll be, like, driving, and I'll be looking at all the people passing in the cars, and I think, man, like, how do you... How do you get the message out to the masses, right? That there's this thing called meditation, that there is a way forward, you know? But today I was driving in the car and I was looking and I said, you know, I bet every single car that passes, they know about yoga. Whether or not they practice it themselves, I don't know, but they know. They know that there's this thing called yoga. They kind of know what it looks like. They kind of know what it's about. Maybe everyone has like a friend who does it or they've tried it or someone's told them they should try it. And I thought, probably every single car that I saw driving down 93 today, they know about yoga. And I thought, you know what? Like, that's a step forward. That's a huge step forward, if you think about it. If you think that every single person in, our, in America probably knows about this thing called yoga, that's huge, because that's, that's nothing else except a practice like this that people can reconnect to themselves and kind of move forward. So there was a part of me that thought, you know what, I think that there is also, as much as when you look at the news and the media and things like this, you really feel like we're, as a nation, moving in the wrong direction in a lot of ways, or as a world even. If you really look at what the people are doing, the movements of the people, you see that a lot of people um, are actually starting to move in a healthier way for themselves, that a lot of people are turning to these kinds of practices, meditation. The fact that there's mindfulness in schools is huge. Right? The fact there's yoga, the fact that Whole Foods exists and it's thriving and they're everywhere. Right? I was just in Florida. There's a Whole Foods in Florida. There's a Whole Foods in Sedona, Arizona. There's Whole Foods everywhere. Right? That collectively, people have said, we want a better option for life. We want a better quality of life. We want fresh, organic stuff to eat and we'll pay more money for it. And that's fine. So that shows that there's a, a collective kind of, yeah, people are waking up and also seeing that that we do want something healthier, that we do want to turn the tides, that we do want to find a way. And, um, and I can only hope that ultimately all that stuff comes together, that, that technology and spiritual practices and, and the cultural kind of, that all that stuff eventually finds a place where we do find more of a balance, where it all makes sense together. And it's not so kind of like disjointed as it is now, I feel, sometimes. Any questions or comments? So I think um, I think tonight, sometimes I would do like a sitting round, and then I do a question and answer, and then I would do uh, a walking meditation and then a sitting meditation. I think tonight. Also, as we're moving forward, I don't know what number class this is tonight, three, four, four. I want to start expanding the time of practice. So I want to now start kind of going a little bit more and deeper into it. So also, if anybody has any meditation questions, now would be the time. And if not, I think that we'll do a sitting meditation for maybe 20 minutes. So I usually do it for like 15, so I'll go to 20 tonight. And then we'll do the walking meditation. We'll do a little bit of a longer walking. And then we'll again do a sitting meditation to the end of class. Um, so this is just to start slowly expanding the amount of time that we're practicing to kind of start putting people maybe a little bit more on their limits. Or maybe not. Maybe everyone's just going to have an amazing peaceful meditation. Or maybe everyone's going to fall asleep. I don't know. 
but just to start expanding the, the amount of time that we're, that we're practicing and to really, yeah, benefit from that and um, kind of have our level up, so to say, that when you kind of face something a little bit bigger, you start to get stronger and you start to embody it more. Um, so again, if anybody thinks that they'll have any questions from now until the end of tonight, you can ask your question now. <laughs> um, yeah. Sure. I know that very well. Yeah, I know that very well. Um, so there's two ways to deal with that. One way is to ignore it and let it kind of run its course. I'd say there's three ways. One way is to ignore it and let it run its course. One way is to use it as an object of meditation to actually go into that sensation and start to really go deeper and deeper and deeper into that and really let your mind focus on that. And one way is to scratch. And when I did a Vipassana retreat, I did a 10-day silent meditation retreat, 10 hours of meditation a day, one hour. Uh, it was horrible, right? But it, was, it was great also, but it was horrible. Um, but it was great. You know, it was really challenging, but it was great. But um, around day four, I don't know, so after 30-plus hours of meditating, um, I was, my legs were hurting, I was really uncomfortable, and I kind of started fidgeting in my position. So I'd kind of fidget, I'd sit there for 10 minutes, I'd fidget. And then for that whole day, I was kind of fidgeting and fidgeting, and I like tried without the cushion, I tried with two cushions, I tried this, I tried that. And nothing was working until, and I think it even took me until the next day, and I was like exhausted, and I sat down, and I felt again this pain. And I said, you know what, I'm exhausted, I give up. And I kind of realized there is no such thing as a comfortable meditation position that you can sit in for that long. So I just gave up and I accepted that there's going to be pain. I said, okay, pain, kill me, it's fine. Really, I said, kill me, it's fine. And uh, then this amazing thing happened that it kind of went away by itself because I stopped fighting it. So, um, and I could only get to that place by allowing myself to fidget, right? So. For instance, like when I say to scratch, like, yeah, maybe to scratch, and you'll be scratching, and then you'll sit, and you'll scratch, and you'll do that to the point where you realize this, this is an endless thing that's happening right now, and you kind of just give up. And sometimes that's what it takes. Like, again, my retreat, the whole first part of my retreat was about me letting myself do whatever I wanted until I said, this is not the way forward, and I naturally had to shift. Whereas if I was pushing myself to be disciplined, a lot of people sit, they push themselves to be disciplined, to not move at all, right? I'm not going to move my leg. I'm not going to scratch my leg. That's okay. That's, that's another path. But sometimes it doesn't actually resolve anything. In fact, you're just kind of putting pressure on yourself and pushing yourself. And it's, you know, you're not really, med like the whole point of meditation is to relax. <laughs> We're here to relax. We're here to enjoy. We're here to really, you know, take a breather from life. And we're not here to fight ourselves or push ourselves. I think you know, we do that enough. Um, so really, whatever you feel is the path of love. Whatever you feel is the path of gentleness and, and compassion and love towards yourself, do that. So if you need scratch, scratch. If you feel like you need to go through it, go through it. Yeah. So. Any other last-minute questions before our hour of practice starts? Cool. Okay, so everybody get into your 
positions. 